1: You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and enjoy.
0: Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I'm your host, Maddie Gobo. I'm the events manager here at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. Uh, If you're not familiar with us, we're an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood, of Los Angeles, California. We are open right now from 11 to seven on weekdays and 10 to eight on weekends. We hope you'll stop by, show off your mask, wave at our booksellers through the plexiglass. We miss you, we love you, we wanna see you. Uh, All right, so today we're gonna have a fantastic conversation with Jim Lewis and Ruben Martinez. They're gonna be talking about Jim's new book, Ghosts of New York. and I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. This book sounds really wild and really fun. Um, it's out in April from West Virginia University Press. Uh, Ghosts of New York is a novel in which the laws of time and space have been subtly suspended. It interweaves four strands. A photographer newly returned to the neighborhood where she grew up after years spent living overseas a foundling raised on 14th street, a graduate student, his romantic partner and his best friend entangled in a set of relationships with far reaching personal and political repercussions. Graduate students are always getting into relationships like that. And a shopkeeper suffering from first love late in life, mixing prophecy, history, and a hint of speculative fiction. Its stories are bound together even as they are propelled into stranger territory. And I wanted to read this blurb from Sally Mann. It's just a phenomenal one. Jim Lewis sees like a photographer and writes like an avenging angel. All right, so to introduce our guests, let me read their formal biographies. Jim Lewis lives in Austin and is the author of three novels which have been translated into many languages, Sister, Why the Tree Loves the Axe, and The King is Dead. He has also written criticism, reportage, and essays the New York Times, Slate, Rolling Stone, Granta, and others. And in conversation with Jim today is Ruben Martinez, an Emmy-winning journalist and the author of Crossing Over and Desert America and other titles. He lives in Los Angeles, where he holds the Fletcher Jones Chair in Literature and Writing at Loyola Marymount University. Jim and Ruben, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having us. Thank you so much, Maddie. And... um, it's great to be with you jim we are in the virtual ether uh you're in austin i'm in san
3: francisco at the moment when was Um, the last time we saw each other face to face was that in houston is it that long ago uh, no i saw you i saw you in la um five years ago maybe five years ago
2: another uh, another lifetime of course yes pre (laughs) pre the last four years pre-pandemic pre-everything yeah, um, but it's 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 a great pleasure to to be with you. And I, I, I just want to cue the audience into how I met you because it's a really sexy story, uh, set on the streets of Paris, France, not Texas. And uh, we were doing uh, uh, a book festival, uh, where, uh, featuring a lot of American authors, and we were hobnobbing with the likes of Louise Erdrich and Sherman Alexie, and and that's that's where I met you. And we, yeah. uh, and I remember wonder, uh, a wonderful, fast friendship developing, discussing kinds of matters, historical, literary, and everything else. And uh, we've kept in touch over the years and even jammed a couple of times with guitars in my living room in Los <laughs> Angeles. So it's 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 really great great to uh, connect this way with you. And congratulations on getting Ghosts of New York out.
3: Thank um, you. And thank you and, for, that was the night, that was, I think there was the very first time we met that you recommended Pedro Paramo to me, which has meant so much to this book that uh, I owe a lot to you. So uh, it's really appropriate that we're doing this together. Well, right on. I, 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 um, let's begin with Pedro,
2: because, you know, I'm assuming uh, you, you actually ended up writing an essay um, which, in which you were trying to introduce more American lovers of literature to the great Mexican novel by Juan Rulfo named Pedro Paramo um, that I did recommend to you at that time. Uh, It's a compact little book, 100 and something pages, uh, and it blew open Latin American literature and really opened the doors to what became the boom and what, for better and for worse, became, you know, uh, magic realism, which is kind of became a cliche after a while. but, But there is some good stuff. And that novel in particular stands out to this day. And it's a st- story because of what happens with the characters. They're, they're kind of ghostly. Here we are, Ghosts of New York in your book. They're ghostly. Time is very fluid. Narrative doesn't really flow in, uh, it, it flows back. It's like a tide, you know, uh, sometimes flowing back on itself, back, back and forth. Um, and Ghosts of New York, plays with time a lot Um, and it is not linear. And um, these characters that you bring to life uh, that all share New York, the cityscape of New York, are kind of eventually collide into one another in one way or another. But tell us how this time and space thing, how you arrived at this particular mode of telling the story this way.
3: Uh, what happened actually, um, it, it, I kind of backed into it. I was uh, probably 10 or 12 years ago, I was asked to write an introduction to a book of photographs by David Wanarovich called Rambo in New York, which are these fantastic black and white photographs that he took of himself and sometimes his lover, it seems it's a little unclear who it is wearing masks that, um, uh, that show the only known photograph of Rambeau. And they're very down and out. They're on the subway. They're on the piers. They're in sort of burned out buildings. And um, uh, it it sounds a little (laughs) pretentious in the telling, but they're really fantastic photographs. Um, And I decided to write a short story. And I started to write about that period in New York. Wann died in the early 90s, I believe, of AIDS. Started to write about that period in New York, the late 80s, mid 80s, when he was very prominent and suddenly thought, you know, who the hell wants to read another book about how cool New York was 30 years ago? Um, So I just took what I had written and flipped the tense so that it's all basically said in the future. Um, But it's very strange because first of all, English doesn't really have a future tense the way for example, French does. So you don't actually conjugate the verb, you just use, will or going to in front of it so uh, you know i'm going to run i run um so it, it, it's it's a little bit limited that way um <clears throat> and it's also it, it ends up being a very strange voice because even things which aren't said in the future even things like science fiction are always written in the past tense um, so this future tense or future construct um, i don't know if it's been used in fiction before it's something you usually find in Books of prophecy, um, in the Bible, and um, it and because one is so used to that association, um, when you come when you when you're presented with that, um, that tends it feels kind of oracular, and and you tend to believe it on this level that uh is it's really hard to explain. Um, and I started out writing in the whole book that way and quickly realized that it that it was going to become tiresome very quickly, so they're only Three sections that are about 10 pages each that are written in that voice. Um, but all of them are actually set in the past as far as the book is concerned. So all of them are set in the in the mid to late 80s. I don't know if that well, makes sense. I hope I described that accurately. Let's, let's, let,
2: uh, well, it, it does and it doesn't make sense because uh, especially as Americans, we think, uh, uh, and when I say as we as Americans, of course, that's a uh, crazy imaginary construct that doesn't exist in real life. But let's, for for the sake of argument, as Americans, we don't t- th- tend to think of time uh, in any mode other than linearly, right? Um, and uh, and 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 the whole exceptional exceptional myth of you know we're we're future based people. We don't uh, we don't dwell in the past, even though the past keeps on kicking our ass over and over again. And of course, we're, we're in the middle of, of yet another reckoning with the past right now. But the tense that you're talking about the way it, it's actually on the page, in, like in your opening section, um, is lines like they'll have had an argument, which is they, they will is the future part, right, and have had is kind of like that, that idea of the tide doubling back upon mm-hmm. itself, tide mm-hmm. coming in and mm-hmm. tide going out at the same time, like two waves going in different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and for me, it achieves this very curious thing. And, and it made me think of Latin American authors like Juan Rulfo or Clarice Lispector, the, the amazing uh, Brazilian novelist and philosopher, of um, uh, creating both nostalgia and expectation at the same time. It, it's, it's a really interesting tension, um, and we're talking about people moving through time uh, having experienced loss. There's a lot of loss and melancholy here, um, uh, and New York you know, is, is a city that uh, is, just keeps on popping up you know, and through these characters' lives. So tell me a little bit more about your relationship to New York, which is also your past, and and must have something to do with the way you're approaching time and, and space here.
3: Yeah, um, uh, just before I do that, I will say that I think one great exception, I mean, I think you're right about Americans um, uh, rush to bury the past, um, but the one great exception, and and interestingly, it, it kind of uses the water, the river metaphor that you're talking about is the end of the great Gatsby, that great line about, um, and so we'd go on boats, I can't remember it exactly, um beating into the future or um i have the book here let me see if i can find it well i won't look for it everybody go look at the last the last sentence of the great gatsby which is just a terrific sort of um melancholy but also sort of propulsive way of ending a book um boy new york uh i mean new york is my past it's where i was born and well actually i was born in cleveland but um it's where i was raised and it's where i lived for you know until i was about 40 um and every time i go back i can't think of you i can't think of you as anything other than
2: a new yorker but <laughs> even though you you haven't been there in so long you're in austin right but, but yeah. i think of you as is indelibly a new yorker
3: i you know i i i, I do too and and um you know, I haven't lived there in twenty years. I, I go back three or four times a year, so I don't completely lose touch. But one of the things I noticed, which is which is really striking, and um, which you may not one may not realize until one leaves and starts going back again, is how incredibly swiftly it changes. Uh, I go back now, and every time I go back, the skyline is completely different. Um, neighborhoods are completely different, uh, not just because of the wealth, although that's certainly part of it. Um, but just because, you know, Gem Spa, which was this great little uh, candy store, egg cream place on the corner of St. Mark's Place, um, you know, it, which had been there for 90 years or whatever, you know, it, it just disappears overnight. Um, right. And so that landscape, more than almost any other city I can think of, except for, you know, Dubai or someplace like that, um, just it just keeps layering it, layering and layering and layering on top of itself. Um, and burying and burying and burying its past um, in a way which can be really alarming, uh, but which I don't think you quite realize when you live there. Yes, and
2: it, yeah, you know, it's a cliche, of course, to say it, but 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 it, it, it's true in, in in your book. I mean, the 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 city is a character. It's always lurking, you know, uh, and and pops up you know, in, in street scenes, in in the midst of, 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 of paragraphs, in the midst of dialogue, the city just it just interrupts. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I just uh, lifted a, a, a tiny little bit here, which is Stephanie, your photographer, coming, home, coming back to New York um, after being away and uh, having left it because of loss in her life. And she's coming back. And, and there's a reminiscence uh, of her relationship with Bridget, uh, who, anyway, there's this, there's this, there's just a little, little, little paragraph. I just wanted to give you, uh, have the readers hear it for a second. Do you think I'm timid? She asked Bridget on the phone one night outside a car alarm was sounding and all the skyscrapers were standing with their shoulders thrown back as if they were soldiers in their finest waiting for the queen to pass on by in parade. Do you think I'm cold? Back to the dialogue. Do you think I'm spoiled? And there's the, there's moments like that that you know just eru- the city just erupts you know and it's it's that this is a, this was a super striking uh, moment to me just you know the, the brute eruption of the city into their uh, into their subjectivity. Uh, but uh, what is the city to you in this
3: book? It, if it's a character, what's it doing? Um, well, first, just to go back to the passage you read, because I think this is really striking also. Um, one of the things which I associate with New York, which I don't associate with any other city I've ever even visited, is the noise of it. It's just an incredibly noisy city. Um, and there's no escaping it. Uh, even more than visually, I think the noise of New York is really overpowering, whether it's it's usually sirens on the street, um, which were particularly bad during the COVID crisis, but, even in general, you know, it's jackhammers, it's people partying, it's, um, it's it's you know, and because Manhattan has very few sort of um, purely residential neighborhoods, it's just inescapable. And that part of it was very important for me to try and capture the sense of um, literally your conversations being interrupted or you're having to talk over or shout over, it's like being in a noisy restaurant, you know, 24 hours a day. Um, and again, it's something you get so acclimated to that you don't quite recognize it until you go back. Um, so that part was important to me. What is New York to me? God, you know, New York is Dad. You know, New York is your father. You know, it's you know, it's it's the authority that loses a little bit of authority as you get older. Um, it's something that you can, you know, I mean, even though, in the sort of paradoxical way, every time I go back to New York, it looks younger. Because there's so much new construction, um, and because there are so many you know new people there, and neighborhoods change, as I said, so quickly. Um, but it's still, in some sense, you know, a lot like the relationship you have with your father. You know, you you spend the first half of your life trying to please it, and the second half of your life trying to escape it. <laughs> uh.
2: Yes. Well, you just uh, thanks for bringing my father into the conversation. <laughs> uh, the uh, all our fathers for the conversation. Uh, well, the 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 uh, the ARL the ARL A U R A L city is 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 overwhelming, certainly, and and the visual city is also overwhelming. And and in that particular passage, you, you had we had both things going on, right? Mm-hmm. The aural mm-hmm. and material visual city. And the book is getting at both the overwhelming materiality of the city, but also its ghosts. You know, maybe well, this it's is not something, the,
3: you know, central. Go ahead. No, uh, this is something that I, that I you know, the, the, the two characters talk about in the first section of the book. One of the things that's really fascinating to me about Manhattan, at least, is there are no cemeteries there, there are no graveyards. Um, I mean there are little ones. There's Trinity Church and there are a couple of other tiny ones, but almost every other major city I can think of has a huge cemetery right in the middle of it that um serves as a reminder that, you know, history is long and people come and go. And um, you know, in the midst of life we are in death and vice versa. And New York doesn't have that. So it almost feels to me like there's gotta be some place for all of these, all this consciousness, you know, to go. Um in all of this history to go um, because because it is so it is so it's you know it's all shunted off into the farther reaches of Queens basically um <laughs> exactly the the
2: well and uh, and you do something it's it's kind of like you're bringing a city a cemeteryless city and immediately I thought of you know, Paris' cemeteries and Mexico City yeah. cemeteries. They're like central features. Havana, I, I Moscow, actually,
3: yeah, London, Highgate, you know. Right, I mean, Havana, right, the right, cemetery, the right. Havana, the cemetery is basically, you know, um, the most striking thing about the city in a way, or the most monumental thing about the city. And,
2: and, and, of course, in Los Angeles, which is, stands out among the cities that they were talking about because it's peculiar, you know, far flungness and, 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 uh, you know, strange geography, at least compared to you know these uh, o- older uh, cities, um, uh, grid cities. Uh, Los Angeles has uh, Forest Lawn, which is which is Glendale, and uh, and so and it's kind of a central location, but it's it, it kind of floats above the city in, in a in a mm-hmm. weird way. That's that's where Michael Jackson and my grandparents uh, are bar- and my mother are buried, by the way. Uh, my, mm. my 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 within a stone's throw of Michael Jackson's grave, which is that that's the way things are in LA, right? You're uh, the, the the celebrities are actually right there um, um, right. among us. Sorry for that right. little digression, but no no. Um, in terms of the dead present, that you have a you have a wonderful section where you just list off a bunch of deaths, you know, across epochs, across decades. You know, so-and-so, heart attack on that corner in 1955. So, and just like snapshots. And, and you have tried your hand at photography and have collaborated with photographers and written on photography. And you're us these snapshots of, of the dead, uh, revealing them to us. And, and, and I think photography is just kind of like a, it's always latent for you as a theme in your work, both because you've practiced it and pondered it and there's some, and clearly Stephanie, she's a photographer, right? And you're, mm-hmm. and, and also the way you capture things visually. Give us the, what's what is photography doing for you here in this book, and what does it do in your life?
3: Hmm. Well, I think photography is endlessly fascinating to me. Um, uh, and you know, and one of the things that's fascinating to me about it is that it, it really didn't exist 150 years ago. Um, So now, you know, if you ask most people what they would grab from their house if their house was burning down, most of them would say old photographs. I'm not sure how much this is still true in the digital age, but it certainly was true for a very long time um, because they are our memories. Um, And and that's the way we remember things is through through photographs. And, um, you know, when analog photography was around, it was even stranger because you would take all these pictures, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't know what you were going to remember until you got the pictures back from the photo mat, which was, you know, sometimes a week later. Um, the other thing about photography, which I've always found really fascinating is um, more than any other visual art, it was, the, it was, it was open to women um, and Jews. And, and it, it's a very much, especially street photography is very much a New York kind of phenomenon. Um, so when I had this character who was female and was Jewish, um, it, I think I had those in place before I decided that photography was going to be her vocation, um, because it all it all just kind of clicks together. But it, it you know in a larger sense, I think photography is 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 simply our our, our most tangible form of memory, and in some cases, our only form of memory. Um, you know. My mother died about three months ago, and one of the things that has come about after this is all of us kids. um, There were there were four there now three have been exchanging old photographs of her, uh, which the rest of us haven't seen because all of us have a couple of them, Um, and some of them are most of them are photographs before we were born um, and without them. It would be, it would be, I would have a very different sense of my family. You know, there's a picture of my mother with her father and her grandfather and her great grandfather. um, And without that photograph, they would, they would just be names. Um, Yes. And photography
2: is, 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 how am I going to say this? I mean, the, the photographs are ghosts, aren't they? I mean. They're, I mean, it's it's like, like I know they're, they're a material thing. I, I have a book of photography uh, on my desk right now. Uh, I have uh, a Taxi by Joseph Rodriguez, my, my wonderful friend and Richard Price, somebody that, um, that you know as well about New York. I mean, it's a material thing, although it's become a, a virtual thing also, you know, and, and there's, a, there's a shift that, that occurs with that, but but the material thing it's almost like I can put my hand through it, right? Well, it's made there's, out of it's a it, ghostly.
3: It's made out of light, you know. Um, ultimately, um, and it's probably the first thing, you know, human beings ever had that was that was um, in a causal relationship with light in that direct way. Um, and so, there's always going to be something slightly kind of spectral about them, um, because they're capturing images which are gone, and they're capturing them um, by way of this very immaterial seeming substance um yep and we're looking at them on
2: our walls
3: mm -hmm. they're
2: just right there and so it's like and and the ghosts are telling us that that we're ghosts too in, in some way no i mean um i mean that's on that that's the spectral aspect of it but photography also transforms the way we regard the city in particular you know if paint what painting did for the past the, the pastoral, you know, painting could do in a particular way, but photography does the city, doesn't it? Doesn't it transform the city? I mean in terms yeah, of Yeah,
3: especially new I mean obviously there's like Ansel Adams and stuff. Um, so it records nature on, on some level, but nature doesn't change the way cities do. So you don't look at a photograph of, you know, Mount Pinell and, and think, you know, or or you know, Mount Shasta and think about what it, you know, what it looked like 200 years ago it looked pretty much the same. Um, but I think photography is associated with certain cities. It's associated with New York and Paris, for the most part. Through Mexico City. Mexico, City, Mexico City. But you know, I don't, I don't. You know, I'm sure there is one, but I don't know what the tradition of photography in Portland, and Oregon, is. Um, so I don't know if it's if it's automatically universally urban or if it's very much a kind of New York thing. Again, um, it's also very much at least in America about Jews. It's Robert Frank. It's Diane Arbus. Um, you know and mm-hmm. and uh, you don't have big Jewish communities in a lot of cities um so mm-hmm. you, you know you don't necessarily have that that same tradition and also you know New York is incredibly photogenic um it's 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 really hard to take a bad picture of new york um and and I'm not quite sure why I don't know whether it's because it's all orthogonal or you know um because there's so much artificial light uh, or because it's so busy um but it, it's 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 only parish that I can think of is as photogenic, and I don't know whether that's just because I'm used to photographs of the two of them, or whether um, they are um, particularly conducive to being represented that way. Well, we we could talk about photography. I mean, forever
2: because it's an endlessly productive subject, and and I, I think don't like know, most, like yeah. what
3: is the photography? What's the photography of Mexico City like? Oh my God, it's
2: it, it, I think. I have, you know, my shorthand for, for the places that I'm, I'm most intimately connected to because of family, uh, and, and heritage are, uh, Mexico city and, and El Salvador. Uh, mm. one's a city, one's a country, but El Salvador is a very tiny country. It's about the size of Mexico city. <laughs> you know? Um, but, uh, you know, I always say that, you know, uh, uh, El Salvador is a land of poets and Mexico city is the land of photographers that. Uh, it's like, you know, it's got, it's like the ICP, right? International Center of Photography in New York, the the great school and and Mm -hmm. exhibition space. You've got the Centro de la Imagen. It's right there in the center of Mexico City. It's like the city regards itself through photography. It was also, you know, uh, uh, an amazing, uh, still amazing cinematic capital, right? Um, New York didn't become the cinematic capital, LA did. For right. you know for all kinds of different reasons, light especially, right? The quality of the light that we Weather, have, yeah, uh, lots yeah, of sunshine. You know, yeah. but uh, but uh, Mexico City re- regards itself as it's, but the beginning of the modern. You know, Mexico City is the, the the I always say Mexico City is the first great modernist capital. It inaugurates the modern with the revolution, and the revolution is photographed. You know. The the revolution was televised, you know, in in Mexico City in 19, from 1910 to 1917, you know, and and those
3: ghosts haunt us today. But like, like, here's an interesting thing. Um, I was in Beirut a couple of years ago, um, and I was talking to a bunch of photographers, and there's a lot of photography in Beirut, and it's a very photogenic city. And I asked them why photography was so prominent there. And they said it's because of the Armenians. The Armenians all brought photography with them when they emigrated to, to Lebanon, um, is, is there, is there a population that in Mexico city that, um, that carries this tradition or is it more generalized than that? Yeah. A specific population. I
2: mean, there was so, there was so much interaction between Europe and, and Mexico city. I mean, if you're anybody in Europe, uh, you know, in the arts at the turn of the 20th century, you had to go to Mexico city. Right. Uh, that was the emer- it, it was it was the per- it was fertile territory for modernists because mm-hmm. it had the prim- the quote unquote primitive thing. Right. You could mm-hmm. go and look at indigenous people and pretend that you were in a diorama of the Aztec right. past on the one hand. Right. Uh, one of modernism's obsessions. And on the other hand, uh, uh, it was an, an incredible metropolis that was designing itself with all kinds of innovation. In the urban sense, and in arch- and in architecture design and architecture, right? It was mm-hmm. imitating Europe to an extent, but there was also something else going on. It's a super complex you know, thread of colonial history and uh, and 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 then technology, right? I mean, Mexico City was was arguably much more modern a capital, right, at the turn of the twentieth century uh, than and than were many places in Europe, uh, but. Uh, how do we get down this rabbit hole? I
3: don't know. Now we're
2: discussing Mexico City as the modernist capital of the world, which it is, I, I argue uh, uh, forcefully. But um, back to let's get off the, the, the photography and modernism track for a second, uh, because there's another wonderful part of your book that um, I, I read with uh, You have a music section. Mm. Uh, one of your characters, Caruso, the foundling raised by uh, an African-American couple, uh, is an extremely talented musician. And you have an extended scene where uh, he's composing, he's appropriating a song and making it his own and and putting and, and producing it. So we're in the studio and it's a stirring scene. It made me think immediately of James Baldwin, another New Yorker, uh, who writes and uh, uh, books uh, short stories like Sunny's Blues and 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 and, and uh, many other scenes from, from from the novels? He writes so well about music made, um, which is not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it, you know, music critics have kind of like their language for it, but to right. render music performed live and in and in the studio you're still performing right in a way uh, is is not an easy thing to do. But this is an, an arresting moment where uh, just the magical, uh, the alchemy of musicians communicating with one another in the studio is, is an incredibly vibrant scene in the book. Uh, tell, us, tell us how that, that it, it, it just looks like you had tremendous fun writing that section.
3: It was really fun to write. And it, it came from um, probably six or seven years ago, a friend of mine down in Austin, who I've been friends with for a good 20 or 30 years who's a singer songwriter a guy named Michael Picasso. He yeah I guess he's got about eight or ten albums out and I, I'm always talking to him about his stuff and so he invited me to produce a record with him um which I did or produce a record for him and I ended up playing on it also um kind of holding on by my fingertips um and it's incredibly fun um And it's so much more fun than writing. And it just reminded me that pretty much everything is much more fun than writing. Um, But there's something that happens in the studio. I think, I think, you know, I think the studio is kind of a mysterious place. you see, you see a lot of movies about movie sets. And you see a lot of TV shows about TV shows and movies about TV shows. But um, I think a lot of people don't really realize how a recording works. And and there are very different ways that it can happen. Um, In this case, they're all together and they're all, sort of um recording live um slightly isolated from each other um but there is this this kind of magic that happens i felt it and it's unlike anything i've ever experienced i think probably the closest thing to it is playing a sport a team sport um where you just know where the other player is and you know you pass the ball without looking or, and you're just all working together towards this common goal. And it, it's, a, it's a really striking feeling. Um,
2: it, it's what I love You use the line to describe that very process. Uh, a wonderful simile, like children pursuit of a butterfly. <laughs> I, 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 it's safe to say that no one has used this particular simile to describe uh, the the process uh, of, of, a, of a bunch of musicians coming together and, and, and grooving and uh, on the spot and uh, the alchemy that, that occurs when a song finally gels yeah. um, and the description of it you know is is meticulous um, and uh, is kind of like the, the equivalent uh, da Pennebaker has a wonderful um, documentary of the original broad uh, original broadway cast recording of Stephen sondheim's company oh i love that uh, which, and, uh,
3: the, which is, the elaine stritch performance is one of my favorite things ever in that, in yes. that documentary
2: yes and i thought of it, i thought whoa is this going to go in the elaine stritch direction is there going to be a meltdown in the studio <laughs> a little bit too much drinking going on in the studio or is it going to be like uh uh, uh, like Didion describing uh, the Doors in, in the White Album. You know, everybody just waiting around for, for Jim Morrison to show up. But it, 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 it's, it's a classic. Uh, I, I brand this a classic of the genre, which is not easy to do in writing. I, I, I don't know if you, you, you share that, 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 that idea, that it, it's not, you don't often see really grinning about how music is made. There's a challenge there
3: about it yeah the, you know it's funny because i th- I think I spoke to you about this i was just i just read Charlie Mingus's autobiography for probably the second or third time um though I haven't read it in twenty or thirty years um and it's great and it's it's complete madness all the way through um, but there's very little in it about music it's mostly about women um, and and that was a little bit dis- disappointing because it is really fascinating to read um you know, how these things are made. And one of the things that I ended up doing was reading a bunch of books as I was getting ready for this, because I had no idea really what a producer did. Um, so I read a bunch of books by producers and and they're, they're the ones who are kind of have the most um uh bird's eye view of the whole thing. <laughs> um, because they're not in the middle of it playing, but they're they're sort of half in the middle of it. Um and and if it works well, they're very much in tune with the people who are playing um but and, and I also think, you know, with the exception of, you know, Dylan, maybe, there aren't a whole lot of musicians who are really good writers. So it's it's kind of hard. You know, it's one of those things that uh um it would be hard for an insider to do, I think. Um so I don't know. I mean they're uh-huh. I guess they're good books about sports. Um, I don't know if 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 athletes think so, but um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, I do want to widen the, the lens a little bit, if you'll allow me that metaphor, since we were talking about photography, um, uh, you're uh, a, a wonderful journalist and have Thank a you. lot of experience uh, writing uh, different parts of the world, uh, war, war uh, violence, extreme violence, uh, Republic of Congo, for example. So many years ago, um, and and I'm in Latin American letters. relationship between journalism and the novel is just kind of like is it, very clearly established. Mm-hmm. Um, most novelists were or continue to be journalists. I just know that. That's just kind of like you You know, you are. Uh, you do reportage. You do criticism. You do um, uh, first-person essays, you know, all in your local newspaper, mm-hmm. right? Uh, op- op- opinion mm-hmm. pieces, you know, uh, as as well. You, you you've got you're you're a five-tool player in journalism, and and you write you know a novel every two or three years. That's just kind of like the Latin American literary, you know, uh, job description. Mm-hmm. And in the United States, oh, and you probably do some poetry on the side. In, in the united and and I don't know if you've ever tried your hand at poetry, but I just described you essentially <laughs> you know uh, and um and I don't find that varied job disc- literary job description to be very common in the United States.
3: It's not, and I think there's a really you know? specific reason why um, i mean i did you know to me they're very very different activities um they're i you know um they're both writing, but they're very different kinds of writing and, and so I don't think of them as quite as related as, as maybe a Latin American author would. The fact is, in a very banal sense, uh, most literary writers in America need another source of income. Um, and so you can teach, which I don't wanna do, um, and I'm not really qualified to do because I've never taken any writing classes. Uh, you can do Hollywood, which is usually the last anybody ever hears of you. Um, you know, you can work a regular day job, um, which, uh, one of my favorite poets, a guy named Franz Wright did, um, for years and years. He worked at a children's hospital, uh, or you could do journalism. And for me, journalism, which I kind of got into accidentally, um, was, was very easy because my father was a journalist. My brother's a journalist. My mother was a journalist for a little while. So it's something that I kind of grew up with. And, um, so just kind of knowing how to do that—that that kind of reporting—is—is—is—is is, uh, um, is, is, is kind of second nature to me. Um, but I, you know, i, I, I wish—I wish I could say there was something profound in that connection for me, but it really is a day job. Um, it's well, a great I, I, day I job. Me I mean, push, it's a really fun job. But... I'm gonna—I'm yeah. gonna push you a little bit on that.
2: It's like you saw a massacre in the Republic of Congo.
3: I, afterwards, yeah.
2: Right? I mean I, did, yes. I didn't do afterwards. That yeah. Yes, you came upon the scene afterwards. You, uh, this, this was you know something that you you that that just that's that will be a haunting for you forever, right? And, I and basically and that, I
3: basically divide my life into before then and after then, yeah.
2: I, I can imagine. How does that not how is that a day job? How how does that not show up? <laughs> how does that show up in some some profound, but maybe not obvious
3: way in, in your- uh, You must be right. Um, just as an aside, uh, when I was there was, was during the publication week of my last book, which was absolutely perfect. There's nothing better than being 8,000 miles away in the bush with no uh, access to telecommunications when your book is coming out. It's, it was really kind of perfect in that regard. Um, I stumped him. Uh, I stumped him. Yeah, you kind of, you kind of did. I, <laughs> I wish, I wish I had an easier answer to this. Um, you know, I, I think, I think, you know, there's, there's a great line of of Norman Mailer's where he says, you know, a writer becomes mature when they realize that something out there isn't kidding. Um. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, that was kind of a revelation to me that this that this isn't all a game. Um, and that uh, you know, and, and 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 finding that out in the most sort of brutal way. I mean, it's it's not like I was flippant about it before. You know, one is always searching for uh a way to find some kind of seriousness without being precious about it. Um I think that um you know, when I came back, I just felt like I was on a different planet, which had much stronger gravity. You know, uh, so I, yes. you know, I, I was kind of stomping around a little bit more. Um, if if that makes sense, does that make sense? Yes, yes, of course, of course.
2: Yeah, yeah. The, the, I mean, the cliché is the, the the world. Yeah, you re-enter the place, your home. You know, uh, after an experience like that, but the home is transformed. Uh, you can't. It's it's not. Yeah, it's not the same. Nothing's nothing's the same. I mean, I I carry around the violence. Uh, I've lived with violence. My uh, you know, my father drove uh, James Baldwin in in the famous notes of Native Son describes, you know, the the smashed plate glass and fires of the riots in 1943. You know, I was three, four years old, my father leaving the house during the Watts riots. A generation later, I covered the L.A. riots um, uh, after having covered the war in El Salvador. Uh, and it's just, you know, uh, and uh, and then the narco violence of the last 15 years in Mexico and Central America. Mm. And it's like I, I, I woke up one day middle aged and realized that my entire adult life and even early childhood is just like relentless it's violence it's one chapter of violence leading to another with these little breaks in between but not much
3: of a break you know know, it's funny because my brother just told me which i didn't remember that um during the newark riots in 67 my mother brought me and my brother down to newark to protest um i would have been four years old uh and he would have been six um you know, and coming from a news family, you know, you know, sometimes in an indirect way, but uh, you know, the late 60s and 70s were a very violent time. Um, One of the things about the Congo, though, I think that really affected me was that the people who had died were, um, nobody's ever going to know who they were, you know, there's no system for registering births. Um, You know, there's certainly no system for registering deaths. So you know, this carnage just gets literally buried by the side of the road and people move on. Um, And what we think of is that, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are ceremonies and there's mourning and there's grieving um, and there there are ways of um, making some sort of permanent mark that this person existed. Uh, But if so, they were invisible to me. Um, And so there's this terrifying sense of, Somebody being born and then living and then being murdered um, and leaving no trace behind, at all, no record, yes. no nothing. Yes. Um, which, which, uh, um, you know, and and I think part of what that did to me in terms of this book was this idea of trying to save the dead, of trying to, mm-hmm. you know, of trying of trying to um, recommunicate with them, make sure that they're remembered um and 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 you know, and make sure that the effect that they have on the living is is made explicit um, for people who might otherwise uh you know not get an obituary in the newspaper or you know have a big church funeral or or have a gravestone or something like that um, you know and and it, you know, and I think of the age crisis also and and what what carnage that was and and um you know, how, how cast out a lot of, a, a lot of those guys were. Um, and, it, you know, it's not the same as dying anonymously, but it is this sense of having, um, of their friends having to sustain their memories, in, in many cases, because their families wouldn't. Sure. Jim, did we yeah. lose you or did, oh, there you are. Sorry, did you get yeah. the end of that sentence? I, I don't think I did. Oh, I, I was just talking about you know, a lot of the men who died of AIDS. You know, their friends had yes. to had to create memories of them because their families wouldn't, frankly. Yes. Yes.
2: Yes. 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 And is, this completely puts me in 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 the frame of uh, frame of mind of um, Ecclesiastes, quoted by James Agee. Uh, Let us now praise famous men, which hmm. is. Of course, not about famous men. It, 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 you know, the whole, the whole, the whole, that whole passage in Ecclesiastes turns on the idea of all, not the kings, not the poets, not the ones who had the big funerals, you know, not the ones the Hollywood Reporter, you know, talks about, but, but the ones who lived invisibly. Yeah. And yet Ecclesiastes says, "But these were men of mercy, and they shall be remembered forever." Is the final line. Of that, and uh, and for James Agee, that was the poor white tenant farmers in Alabama. Yeah, right. Yeah. And uh, this, is, so and and that's that. Was, and of course, uh, Agee was working with Walker Evans, the, the fabulous, you know, Depression era photographer, uh, FSA, you know, project. And which brings us back to photography. I, I think they were on, a, weren't
3: they on assignment for Fortune or something like that?
2: Yes. Yes. I don't and, think and that, I think he would was I don't think the particular project, project was. per se, but, but uh-huh. yeah, but right, right. But he did, he did FSA work too, I, I believe. But, but at any rate, the, 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 the photographic register, both in the and, and the book is, you know, both writing and photography, right? Um, and, and your writing, man, is, is, is like photography. You know, there's some, There's a a, a a a a great photographic quality to it, and um, uh, and you're on the way you're honoring these otherwise invisible lives. Um, is 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 very very touching, very moving.
3: I have I, to I, say, I, I like you what know, you've done here. I had, I had an interesting experience when I you know, I used to teach a course at Columbia called Lit Hum, which was this this kind of, um, you know, Homer to Virginia Woolf year-long literature class, and um, one of the things we would read was the Bible, and I had them read um, the Song of Solomon, and they couldn't figure out, you know, there are lines in there like, you know, your breasts are like young rose, meaning, you know, baby deer, Um, and they they, they found that sort of comical, Um, and I realized at that point that um, contemporary culture is so used to thinking of Visual metaphors—that um, the idea that something would be like something else basically means it looks like it—and um, that's what—and that's what they were missing—and that's why they were reading it and going, well, "I don't understand this." Um, so you know, and I'm very visually oriented, but I really try to make an effort to include sounds, include smells, because um, that's one of the things also about New York that's really distinctive to me is the smell of restaurants um, and restaurant garbage and you know, kind of restaurant dumpsters. Um you know, <laughs> yes, which is yes. which you that, don't get anywhere. The smell of white concrete, which you don't get anywhere, the smell after 9-11, which nobody will ever forget, whoever experienced that. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, I have to mm-hmm. I have to kind of stop myself sometimes from getting too visual because I think um it it's it's just uh um limiting yourself in a way which is completely unnecessary. And I also want to mention just before I let you talk again, um if you want to, if you look at the first edition of Hart Crane's poem, The Bridge, there are photographs of the Brooklyn Bridge that Walker Evans did. There are the first photographs he published, and they're absolutely beautiful. And they go so well with the poem, mm. which also, you know, that poem has a relationship to this book that's a little bit hard to explain, but one of the chapters is named after a line from, from that poem. Um, but well, anyway, anyway uh, um, Evans seems to have the writers that. a lot.
2: Yes, uh, which, which brings us to, to kind of Susan Sontag territory right? uh, uh, regarding the pain of others. And, and you know, what, what I always took away from, from that particular essay was uh, the photograph without, not always, but often a photograph without a caption can just, you know, can, uh, without a, a real caption, uh, a well done caption, you know, that offers you know, crucial context um, uh, that you know comes into synergy with with the visual image um, uh, is what safeguards uh, the the image from you know being battered around ideologically and, and 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 potentially put at uh, at the purposes of of evil.
3: Say uh, that again. I'm not quite sure I understood you. A photograph without a caption is like you're the one that's with
2: good with similes. I don't have the simile for it. Um, Are
3: you saying a photograph without a caption is dangerous, or that it's safe?
2: That it can that it can be extraordinarily dangerous without, a, a, and I'm talking about a real contextual, uh, you know, a, a text that is uh, yeah. both commenting, exploring, critiquing.
3: Uh, uh, in, yeah, I mean, you know, captions with the image. Captions can make photographs lie too. You have to be a little bit careful about that because, you know, be the wrong caption and you'll start seeing things that aren't actually there. Um, you know, I think mm-hmm. photography. You know, one of the things I love about photography is it's very dangerous and it's very amoral. Um, you know, I think uh, um, I think the archetype of a photographic image is basically pornography. Uh, I think Sontag is right that photography is completely exploitive, um, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what I—that's kind of what I love about it. Negotiating that uh, inherent vice. Uh, we, is we part see. of the photographer is part of yeah. I love, you know, um, uh-huh. but but you know he, he's a deeply immoral guy in a lot of ways. Right. Um, right. You know, and I and I think that's that that dangerousness is kind of what makes the medium so great um, is, you know, to what extent you give into it, to what extent you try and circumvent it, you know, it's not a, it's not a moral activity. Um,
2: (laughs) And and would you say the same thing about the novel? uh,
3: Certainly in some hands. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the novel is a little bit more moral these days than I would like it to be. Ah, Uh uh-huh. You mean, you mean pious. In, I mean
2: in the pious sense.
3: Piety. I, yeah, I mean, you know, the good triumph, or if they don't triumph, then they're recognized for their suffering. Um, you know, they're they're all sorts of you know, this book, you know, had to go through a what did they call it? And I don't mean to sell out my publisher here because they've been absolutely great. Um, but 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 they put it through a reader who's only there to look for possible political incorrectness. Um and, you know, he, my editor apologized for it and said, you know, just ignore this. And I did. Um, but I think... And, and this, is, um, this is a common
2: thing. This is a common thing these days. This is... Uh, they're, they're, what are they called? The, the readers that do this. The, yeah, I can't,
3: there's a name for it. I can't remember. There is a name
2: for this. I, I'm blanking on it, too. But yeah, this is... This is, part, this is uh, de rigueur, right? Yeah. 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 And, uh, and I sense you chafing against uh, it. Sensitivity readers, Matty says. Yes. That, yes. Sensitivity <laughs> Of course. So and of course and of course the, the uh, uh the, the novelist in you, uh the modernist novelist
3: in you goes uh WTF, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I'm not saying that, you know, the novel should be poisonous, um, but you know, I think the novel should, you know, a novel could be or can be and should be allowed to be, um difficult you know and and um you know in some cases outrageous I mean you know gay literature wouldn't exist if everybody was playing by the rules of the game at the time it was it was uh you know it it first started coming into prominence um you know I I think I said this to you on the phone the other night I've never really been able to get myself to believe that art should be good for you um and and I think we live we live in a culture that now that said you know this is not the most outrageous novel in the world i'm not you know i'm not interested in you know et de la bourgeoisie you know um, i think i think that's kind of a silly reason to do anything um, but i'm I'm, almost, I'm also not really interested in giving any kind of moral instruction and i think um, i think you know writers are forced to worry about this in a way which is understandable but uh, which i don't cotton to which you don't want. cotton to that was a Texas phrase um, <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, so yes and you know and of course if, if we had you know uh, live uh, uh, chat here you know we, we would get into this huge thing about cancel culture and um, uh, political correctness and, and the like and I mean it's it's complicated territory I mean it's it's, it's not just novelists that are facing it it's it's professors in the classroom with a, yeah, Warnings, and that's know. not
3: even what I'm. That's not even what I'm talking about. I think, you know, the novel is essentially a bourgeois invention. It's it's it created for people who have a lot of free time, um, and are willing to spend it on that kind of leisure, um, you know, and and so you know, it tends to reflect bourgeois values, uh, traditionally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, even even the the whole PC thing, you know, which is part of what I'm talking about, but it's not the entirety of what I'm talking about. Um. You know, if you compare like the original Grimm's fairy tales, which are absolutely brutal to <laughs> yes. Jane Aust- you know to Jane Austen, you know you can see where a certain kind of um, you know bourgeois morality kind of creeps into things, and that's fine, you know that's 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 the prevailing morality um and and I think you know if if you're comfortable with that, then that's the way to write. Uh, but it would never occur to me to. Use a novel to try and make somebody else a better person So
2: that begs the question why the novel
3: then? Why the novel now? Uh... It can do things nothing else can do um, you know just as music and, and movies can. Um, you know there are uh, you know show me a movie that's written in the future tense. It's impossible there's no such thing as tense in a movie all movies are written in the present tense which is why all screenplays are written in the present tense um so you know and one of the things i try and focus on especially in this book because i spent you know one of the reasons why it took me so long to write this book was i spent so long trying to figure out what a novel could do that nothing else can do um and there are things they're they're kind of hard to describe They're, they're modes of rhetoric forms of address um kind of edits and cuts and, and the way things move around, the pacing of it, you know, the way you, the way you have your reader's attention on the end of a string and you're kind of guiding it one way or the other. Um, you know, mm-hmm. linguistic things, which, which, which can't be done in any other medium really, except maybe poetry, but most poetry isn't narrative. Um, so I think there's always going to be room for the novel. It's, it's, you know, it's a form of art and it's a form of art that um, is as distinct as ballet is. Um, now it may end up being a sort of rarefied pleasure for some people, but, um, I can live with that. <laughs> well, yes. And I'm glad you wrote this book. <laughs>
2: and so
3: because, and thank uh, you I've, for... I've
2: had fun, uh, a lot of fun, uh,
3: reading and, uh, talking to you about it, Jim. Appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks. I hope I haven't been Hectoring you, but, uh, we do, we do tend to, <laughs> we do tend to disagree about things and that's why I love you. <laughs> likewise I'm sure love you too brother take care
0: thank you both so much what a great conversation and I I love thinking about the things a novel can do that no other form can do Um, and Jim I think your answer was fantastic for that so thank Thank you you. both Um, Jim thank you for sharing your work with us Ruben thank you so much for the great questions Uh, this was a really meaty conversation and I think our listeners are going to enjoy it so
3: thanks for the opportunity I really appreciate it Thanks, Maddie.
0: Happy to have you. And I hope we get to see you in the store in person, hopefully in the coming year. (laughs)
3: Yeah, next time I'm in town. Next time. And Ruben, Ruben, I'll see you next time I'm in town also. Yeah? Absolutely. All right. Take care, brother. All right. Peace. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody.
1: Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series.